Okay, welcome everyone. This is the second in a series of preparing for the Hagim. And tonight we're going to be learning about the Hagim through Hasidic stories. But we always start with a, a nigan. How can you not? A nigan is like a story. That where a nigan can take us, um, sometimes all the Torahs in the world can't take us. And that's the same thing with a story. Sometimes a story can awaken uh, feelings and memories and thoughts that uh, the Torah can't. We'll start with a nigan. So first I want to say that when when I grew up and I went to a uh, conservative temple, so the impression that the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, left me was somber. I mean, that's what I remember. For all I know, it wasn't that way, but that's just how... It, it left its impression somber and truthfully Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are not somber serious they are awe inspiring they are but they're not um, depressing or somber the mission itself says that there was no more joyous days in the calendar than Yom Kippur and Tubav, the mission itself says it. it it's a very joyous day. It's not, it's, it, it's not a frivolous kind of joy. It's a deep, awe-inspiring joy. So we'll sing a joyous nigan to get us in the into the mood. Bye. Uh-huh. 
Okay, we'll start with hearing from Rabbi Shlomo on stories. This comes from the book Lamed Vav. If you don't have it, you should. It's, it's probably the best book out there that maintains Rabbi Shlomo's authentic voice and uh, gives over the stories in the most beautiful way. It's, a, it's an excellent book. In the beginning, uh, it, it has Rabbi Shlomo talking about what are stories. So it's like 15 pages. I, I just picked a few, few paragraphs. So he says like this, Everything we understand derives from our consciousness. But a story comes from a higher place, from our imagination. And not only that, the Heiliger Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that it is stories themselves that awaken the highest, holiest levels of our imagination. So in one sense, a story comes from the imagination, but it also awakens, especially in the, in the listener, imagination. Stories seem simple. They seem just to be giving over a tale, an event. They seem clear. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But as we listen or read, we realize that stories have many levels, many layers of meaning. They are strange and familiar at the same time. They tease us, invite us to play with them, to turn them inside out to discover all the things hidden and revealed that they are actually saying. And while we wrestle with their meanings, stories, mamish, without our even realizing it, enter into the deepest depths of our being, where other forms of teaching can't reach. There they begin to do their holy work. They open up our closed places. They wake up our imagination. And gewalt, gewalt, something new begins to happen inside us. Stories fill us with new light and new life. Okay, and then he, he starts talking about why do children love stories so much? What's, what's the connection? Everyone knows how much children connect to stories because most little children don't yet know that there's anyone in the world who doesn't love them. They're still living in paradise where everyone is telling each other stories. He says, a good story has to connect to all our emotions. It has to reach not only the place of our laughter, it also has to touch the fountain of our tears. Because it's not only simcha, not only joy that connects us to the, to the Mashiach. Everyone knows that there are two days of the year when we're closest to Mashiach. One of them is Purim, when we're laughing. But the other is Tishabav, when we're mamish crying from the deepest depths of our hearts and souls. And that's another reason why children love stories. When they're small, children are absolutely one with their feelings. When they're happy, they're completely filled with joy, and they laugh with the purest delight. And when they're sad, for no matter how trivial a reason, they cry and wail like their hearts are mamish broken. Until that is, they get older, and we want them to grow up. 
then we tell them not to get so carried away with their feelings. We want them to be mature, which means cutting their emotions in half. But half isn't enough in the world anymore. For anything to reach us in the deepest depths, we need the all. And when it comes to emotions, the all is crying and laughing at the same time. So there's a lot that can be there's a, there's a lot that can be can be said about that. In in Kabbalah, the place of imagination is connected to prophecy, but it can also be false prophecy. That's why our imagination can take us to not such good places, also. And it could really drag us, drag us down with all kinds of fantasies. But in the purest sense, our imagination is connected to that place of, of prophecy. And I'm just thinking, how many times right, do we watch movies and right, we get to the... the climactic scene, you know, like we're getting all choked up. Because really, what is a movie? It's a story. It's just a story with pictures. But that's really what a movie is. And since we live in an age when a lot of times stories are given over through media, but we can understand the this thing that Rip Shlomo was saying about the emotions that <clears throat> that it can grab you in a place that you need to be grabbed to understand the teaching because sometimes you can hear a teaching and you know it intellectually but it doesn't grab you and if it doesn't grab you you're not really going to integrate it it's really not going to be a part of you you know it and it's like hovering somewhere above there. But when you can laugh or cry, it means that it's being brought down into the emotions. So for most of history, though, people told stories. But, but really, really, movies are just an extension of the art of storytelling. Okay, so on a, on a little deeper level, uh, I love bringing Torahs from Rav Shlomo and Rav Ginsburg, my two rabbis, and try to bring them together. So there's a very, very deep connection here to Rosh Hashanah. Because in the Gomorrah, it says that on Rosh Hashanah, three books are opened up. One for the tzaddikim, the righteous, one for the benoni, the intermediate, and one for the not so good, the Rish- not yet so good, the Rishayim. And these three books are opened up, and if we merit... So on Rosh Hashanah, we're already written in to the book of the Tzaddikim. 
And if it's so clear that we don't merit, chas v'shalom, we're written in the other book. But we assume about ourselves that uh, we're told that most people are, written, are not written in either one. And that's what the 10 days of tshuva are about. And in Yom Kippur, the final, you're finally written into one of the books. That's the image. Now, any time the, the, the sages come up with an image like this, it's a story also. It's trying to teach us something. It could, it could give that over very like intellectually. But, but this idea of three books leaves like an impression. I, I can still remember uh, in second grade when we got the Sunday, Sunday school coloring books of the scales, right? And the books and the three books, right? Being open and coloring them in and the honey and the apple. I was thinking before the other two impressions uh, that I have of President Shemin Yom Kippur, for better or for worse, are fur coats. <laughs> because all the women would be wearing fur coats. And I was always wondering, it's like 80 degrees outside. <laughs> Why is anyone wearing a fur coat? And the other one was to know who had the transistor radio who was listening to the World Series in between, right? <laughs> like that was a very important fact at the time, right? Yeah. Especially, the, I grew up in Cleveland, and like once in 50 years, they were in the World Series, Nine, twice. One was right before I was born in 1954. I still remember, I was only five years old, but I remember like there were more transistor radios in the than there were books open. <laughs> I, I think some of you can relate <laughs> to what I'm saying. So the three books of Rosh Hashanah. But where, where what are these three books connected to? And the Sefer Yitzira, which is perhaps the oldest Kabbalistic text, the opening, they're written in the form of Mishnahs. The opening Mishnah says with 32 wondrous pathways of wisdom, and then it goes into many, many superlatives of God. I'll just say God created the world. And then it says the final part of the first Mishnah says, and God created the world with three books Sefer Sefar and Sipur Sefer literally means book Sefar means number and that we get Sofer a num number and Sipur is story uh, Rabbi Arya Kaplan translates it communication, Sipur, communication. This is the first Mishnah of Sefer Yitzhak, how God created the world also with three books. 
So how do we understand these three books? Is that the 32 wondrous pathways of wisdom are the 10 Svirot and the 22 Hebrew letters. That is what the entire Sefer Yitzir is about. The 10 Svirot and the 22 letters. So the very first Mishnah says that with 32 wondrous pathways of wisdom, which are the Svirot and the letters, God created the world through the means of three books. So, since we're talking about letters, when it says three books, Sefer, which means book, text, is the form of the letter. The way that the letter is written in the book. The Safar is the Mispar, and we know that every number, excuse me, every letter has a number, Gematria. And there's an entire mathematical code within the Torah. And the Sipur is the name of the letter and the content of what the letter stands for. So you have form, number, and name. And these are the three dimensions through which the, the content of the universe is channeled through the letters. Why am I mentioning all this? Is because Sipur, one of the books, or one of the channels to which God is creating the world, is through the Sipur, the communication. So this tells us that the concept of a, a Sipur now, especially when we talk about Torah Shabal Peh, a literal oral tradition. And what's incredible is until the Mishnah was written down, it was 1,500 years between Harsinai and the, and the writing of the Mishnah. In other words, the entire tradition was given over orally 1,500 years. And of course, when you read in the Gomorrah, there's many stories of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Noah, Adam, etc. Meaning, thousands of years of oral tradition given through the Sipur. And we know that half of the Gomorrah is what we call Agarata, what we call stories tales, parables, allegories. So a, a full half of the Gomorrah is literally a story. And it's pointed out by, by many Hasidic Rebbe's that the Torah begins with stories. In the whole book of Bereshit you only have a handful of, of mitzvot that would actually later become mitzvot. They weren't before Har Sinai. You don't have the first mitzvah commanded to the Jewish people until the book of Shemot. So the entire book of, of Bereshit is stories. Stories. Holy stories. Shemot is half stories. Bamidbar is, is all, almost all stories. 
So this just tells us how important a, a story is. It's not an extraneous part of our tradition or a nice uh, sweet cherry on top of the of the of the ice cream. It's it's really an incredibly important part. And really once a year we actually have a mitzvah doraita to tell the story of coming out of Egypt. On Seder night, along with the, the matzah, the moror, the time of the temple, the Korban Pesach, but the, the mitzvah of the night was Sipur Yitzir Mitzrayim, is telling the story. So this is just an introduction to the importance of stories. So what I'm going to try to do, this is totally mission impossible, I have five times as many stories as I could possibly tell in the next hour and a half. And I'm going to go a little bit by Ruach HaKodesh, like what kind of hits me as to which stories to tell. But I'm going to try to tell uh, four types of stories. A, a couple for Elul, a couple for Rosh Hashanah, a couple for Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot and Sukkot Torah. So we'll have, we'll have lots of uh, content for our different tables that we'll be sitting at. Yom Kippur, Arab Yom Kippur. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is, is given over by the Rishner. And one time a man came to the Rishner and, and said, Rabbi, I really, really need to do chua. So he, he said, well, why did you come to me? He said, because I don't know how to do tshuva. So the originator said to him, did anyone teach you to sin? He said, no. He said, well, how did you do it? He said, I just did it. He said, so the same thing with tshuva. Like way before the, the, the which, which tennis shoe is it? Just do it. Right? Rishner, he should have, he should have copyrighted it, right? But no, that's the story. He said, just do it. So that's a Hasidic gem. Is it so easy? No. It's not so easy, but the Rishner was also trying to teach us something important is, you, it's true, you can learn about doing tshuva. You can read books about it, you can hear stories about it, you can hear tapes about doing tshuva. But ultimately, you just have to do it. Because we hear them, and we know. Is there anyone here who, who doesn't know <laughs> that we have to do tshuva now? <laughs> right? it's, just like, it's like a given, but... A lot of the times it's just, like, well, I don't know how to do it. How do I do it? So the original was just trying to teach him in like kind of shock therapy. Just like no one taught you how to sin, and you just learned yourself, so you can also learn to do two of yourself. So it has to come from the deepest part of you. So just do it. 
Okay, another short one. Another short one. This is a great one. This is of Rabbi Moshe Preshkversker and his young son. One time it was winter, and the Rebbe would go for a mikvah every Erev Shabbos, no matter what the weather. Where A lot of times, where did they go to mikvahs then? They would literally make a hole in the ice, and they would, they would dunk. So one time they went, and his young son is going too, and okay, the father goes in, and like the young boy is like, whoa. And so he's, he's standing there going, oi, 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 oi. And finally gets the nerve, he jumps in, and he comes out, and he goes, ah, ah. So the rabbi says, ah, oh, what a deep teaching. Sometimes before we do a mitzvah, it's like, oi, oi, oi. But after you do the mitzvah, it's, ah, ah. I love that story. <laughs> and it's the opposite for when you do a sin. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Say it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the other half of the story. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Actually, the Rebbe said it. Go on, say it. You're eating the three scoops of ice cream with the nuts and with the caramel sauce and the hot fudge, and you're going ah, ah, so good ah. But then afterwards, you go oi. It's either you have a stomach ache or you realize how many calories you just consumed and how many, you know, how many speed <laughs> hours of speed walking it'll take to take that off. Right? And thank you. Because that was part of what the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said, he said, look at the difference between when you sin and when you do a mitzvah. It's just, it's just the opposite. Okay, this is a beautiful one of Moshe Lev of Sasov. Moshe Lev of Sasov was known as a great Ohev Yisrael. And maybe, maybe of all the Hasidic Rebbe's that, that we could relate to being close to the way Reb Shlomo was, was Rebbe Moshe Lev of Sasov. He was just this total, total love for Am Yisrael, and he would spare no uh, time or expense or effort to reach out to people. It was actually, he used to go, um, very similar to the way Reb Shlomo used to go to all these alternative festivals in order to find Yidin. Uh, he did this in the 60s, 70s, and where no one else would, would go to these places. And he would go because he knew that half the people there were Yidin, and he, like, you have to go to where the people are. So the story of Rabbi Moshe Leif Sasa, that when he was young, he also used to hang around the, the bars and the pubs and and befriending all of the all the young you know, kids, and just like, you know, going to Ben Yehuda now, and, you know, picking up the, the yeshiva crowd there, you know, after midnight, 
And later, when he became a big Hasidic Rebbe, so one of these um, guys saw him and said, what a fake! He's acting like a Hasidic Rebbe? He used to hang around the bars and he used to drink with us and everything. And so he, he, hung, he hung out in Sasa for a little while and he started to realize, like, this is really a holy person. So then he started thinking back and he said, oh my gosh, I've had it wrong all these years. All those years, that's what he was doing in the bars and the pubs. He was reaching out to everyone. But he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't see it then. He didn't realize what he was doing. So this is Rabbi Moshe Le'el So one time, he, he told his chassidah, he says, one time I was in a pub and there were two non-Jewish guys sitting there and drinking. And they were really drinking. And one of them turns to the other and says, do you love me? So he says, yes, you're my best friend. So they, whatever, clean glasses, they drink. Fifteen minutes later, do you really love me? He said, yeah, we're like, we're, the, we're like this, we're like, we're like drinking more. Twenty minutes later, but do you really love me? He said, yes, I do. So the first one says, so if you love me so much, how come you can't tell why I'm in so much pain? So Moshe Leva said, he said, whoa, did I learn something. Did I learn something. He said, to really, really love someone is to understand their pain. That is a deep teaching. That is a deep teaching. So I read a, a book by Elie Wiesel. It was about, I think, four different Hasidic rabbis. And one of them was Moshe Lev of Sasov. And he writes in the book that after reading hundreds of stories about this person, he was disturbed. Because he said, it seemed like he was too perfect. Like, can someone be like that loving all of the time? And there are no other stories. Every story is about the way he was reaching out to people and the way he was like bringing people in. He said, until I heard a few stories which made me appreciate all the others, because then I could believe that they're all true and not exaggerations. He says, one time his son heard him davening, and his, his, his talus was over his head, and he heard him like whispering, saying, Rabbanu Sha'olam, 
Are you listening to our prayers? Can't you hear our prayers? Don't you know we're at the end? Don't you know we're at the end? Are you listening? So Elie Wiesel said, like, once he read that story, it's like, whoa, right? There was a, 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 deep, a, a deeper side there. And then he read a couple more. Everyone knows what Rabbi Nachman said, The whole world is a very narrow bridge. Actually, I, I think Rabbi Nachman says, Don't scare yourself. <laughs> it's hit uh, pael. But the song, I think, changed it. I think he said, Lehit um, pached. But the ikar, the main thing is not to be afraid. So Rabbi Moshe Levesasov, I don't know if he even heard that Rabbi Nachman said it, but he said, he said, life is like walking on a razor, and the abyss is on both sides. And the main thing is keep on walking. Because here, you know, imagine a narrow bridge. Okay, it's narrow, but you can walk across. But most of the Salsa was saying, a razor. And the abyss is on either side. But just keep walking. And so this is connected. There must be a deep connection between him and Rabbi Nachman because he also advocated a type of heat bodhidut. He didn't make it like this, like a central platform of his teachings. But he taught, and a number of Hasidic Rebbe's teachers said that for one period or one hour a day, we should be broken in a million pieces. And the 23 hours in total joy. In other words, there is, there is a place to be broken every day, but it has to be limited, has to be channeled, and you get it all out, or you take it all in, and then you keep walking. And our, and our, our job here is, is, is really to, to love and to help and to heal and to come close to people and to Hashem. But one hour a day. So Rabbi, so uh, Eli Wiesel said, after he heard these stories, it's like it, it completed the picture of, because he said until then it was almost like a caricature of this perfect being who had no conflicts. He just loved everyone and everything was joyous. And one last one, which is a, is so deep. A woman comes to ask him for a bracha. And she, Chas Shoma should not happen to anyone, has like seven uh, uh, children, and they all die. And, I mean, you can imagine her state. And so she comes to him, and he, he wasn't 
home at, at the time. So she's pouring out her heart to his Rebetzin. And, and his Rebetzin is trying to comfort her. And, you know, like, it's not, it's not so easy to find what to say in a circumstance, like, but still, it, there must be a reason. Um, you know, God still loves you. Um, uh, it, it's all for the good. I mean, what can you say? So just then, uh, Rev, uh, Moshe Leib came home and he hears the conversation. And he's like so overwhelmed. He comes in and he says, that's all true, but I say to you, you should yell as loud as you can in protest. That's what I have to say to you. So this is also a, a, a deep teaching as we approach Rosh Hashanah. In other words, to learn to accept, to understand what's happening in our lives and the people around us. Because we all know there's so much brokenness out there. And there's so much that we can't explain. And we don't know how to explain. But we keep walking, right? But every once in a while, we need to like, say to Hashem, like, are you listening? Like, how can this be? How can this be? How to do it, when to do it, that's not so simple. As long as it's done in the utmost respect. So we see from Moshe Rabbeinu and Avram Avinu, when they, as it were, challenge God, it's not out of a lack of belief. It's because their belief is so strong that they can actually, in a sense, challenge God. Their challenge is an expression of their faith, not an expression of disbelief. So when to scream out at the top of your voice and protest, that each person has to kind of figure out for themselves. But um, it has a place. It has a place. Okay, Rosh Hashanah. For those who haven't been here before, what we're going to do in like 10-15 minutes is we're going to take some of these ideas and we are going to meditate on them to some meditative music as a way to integrate these, these teachings. Mm -hmm. So, very, very quickly, um, one time, Rachel and I were with Reb Shlomo in New York on New Year's Eve. Uh, someone actually made a New Year's Eve party and invited Reb Shlomo to come. So, of course, he turned it into something very, very different than a New Year's Eve party. But I'll, I remember, I'll never forget him saying, he... he 
and told many, many stories around the theme. Um, he said, he said, I don't want to say anything bad, but look at the way we spend our New Year, and you know, just look out the window and see how other people are spending their New Year. And that was his like theme for the night. And he told all these stories and teachings. So that was just that was an amazing thing. Actually, it was amazing to th- just to see how he turned. I don't know if the person realized. I thought they were just you know maybe he would just stop in and say hello, but he just basically like kind of took over the party and turned it into a beautiful, beautiful uh, teaching. Okay, so this is a very, very um, well-known Hasidic story in some circles that the original Rebbe used to tell it on the second night of Rosh Hashanah. Every year, he would tell this story. And the story was like this, is that one year, there were tremendous dinim in Shemayim that all of the Rebbe's felt. And there are many, many Hasidic stories about this. We'll tell another one. And a very heavy energy was like hanging. And the originator says, so what happened in heaven? So they put, what was going on is they put all of the sins of the Jews on one side of the scale and all the misses on the other and it was like this and that's why there were so many dinim and so at one point kind of like everyone you know it's, Rosh Hashanah is a busy day right a lot of people to judge so when when no one is noticing someone comes and steals all the sins And so the angels are like in an uproar, like, someone stole all the sins. What's going on here? And they said, who did this? And a voice came out, Rabbi Levi Yitzhaka Berdichev. He stole all of the sins. So the angels say, well, let's look in the Torah, what is the punishment for a thief? So it says in the Torah and the Gomorrah, if, if someone steals, they have to pay back double. So let's call Levi Yitzhak Bedijev and see if he can pay double. So they call Rabbi Levi Yitzhak. <laughs> and I can't, I can't pay double. So the angels say, well, let's look in the Torah. Let's look in the halacha. What happens when a thief can't pay for what he's stolen? He becomes an evidivri. The court sells him for uh, six years to be a indentured servant. So a voice, a voice calls out, 
So who's going to buy Levi Yitzhak Berdichev? And Hashem himself says, I'll buy Levi Yitzhak Berdichev. So the Rishner says, if, I hope some of you remember this, in the prayers of Yom Kippur, there is a, a piyut, one of the like poems, is called the Yom Din. It's actually it's very short. Most places sing it, um, and it goes through the Aleph Bet. So when it gets when it gets to the Kuf, it's the Kono Avadav Bidin. It's all talking about what. Ha- how Hashem is relating to the judgment of the day. And so when it gets to the Kuv, it's Kona Avadav Bedin. He, he buys his servant in judgment. So the Rishner said, what is this, this verse talking about? Mm-hmm. It's talking about when Hashem bought Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev. And then the next one is the, the, the after the Kuf comes the, the Resh, and that is L'Rachem Avadav Bedin. Why is God buying Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev? Because he knows that Levi Yitzhak is stealing the sins out of his tremendous compassion for the Jewish people. Everyone knows all the stories of of. Levi Yitzhak running to the Aron Kodesh and opening it up and saying, Rabbanu Sha'olam, I found another taina, I found another reason that you should have Rachmanus on your people. One of these stories, one of these stories is that an Arab Yom Kippur people would go to Rabbi Levi Yitzhak to get a bracha. But he would ask everyone to bring a ruble, which he would then distribute to the poor. So, at the end of the day, a woman comes and says, Rabbi, I I want you to give me a bracha. So he says, fine, to have your ruble. She says, Rabbi, I have my ruble, but I'm, I'm very, very poor. I'm very poor, and I need a bracha for myself and my son. So he said, well, that will be two rubles. And she says, but Rabbi, I only have one ruble. So he said, well, I can only give you one bracha. So she says then give it to my son. So Rabbi Levi starts crying. He runs to Shul, opens up the Aaron and says, Rabbi Shalom, we only have one ruble. Can't you have Rachmanus on your children? We only have one ruble. So when Rabbi Shlomo used to tell, tell this, 
he said that on Rosh Hashanah, everyone should say to Hashem, like, if I could, if you'll let me, let me steal all the sins. Let me steal all the sins this year. Hi. Hi. Okay, we want to steal all your emails. Anybody who's not on our email list, we're going to pass this around. Could it be construed as a true story? Is it possible to have these sins of the Hebrew Jews or, or is it a, a marshal for something? On one hand, it's a mushal. And, and it's obviously teaching the way that Rabbi Levi Yitzhak was trying to defend the Jews in God's eyes. Always trying to be Malam and Skut. Um, see the benefit of the doubt. Always trying to say to God, don't you see how holy your people are? Okay? We mess up here, we mess up there. So obviously the story indicates is that, that he stole the sins by, by judging favorably. That the act ah, So that you could say, yeah, truthfully you could say that that's how he stole them. But absolutely right? believing them, the, the way that the Mishnah of Dalmachasut requires you to absolutely believe this, this positive yeah. version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's a very good way to interpret what it means he stole their sins. What does that mean? Obviously in his prayers he stole their sins. Right? And the original is just reporting again like, like, like a Hollywood movie the energy behind the scene. So he was trying to teach how Levi Yitzhak would, would daven on Rosh Hashanah. He was davening like, for all the Jewish people. He was trying to defend them. But on a, on a different level, on a, on a very, very deep level, and this is, this is not something that the, an ordinary person can do, but it is certainly known that uh, many, many tzaddikim would take upon themselves other people's suffering, other people's pain, take away people's sicknesses by taking it upon themselves. Now this is a very heavy matter that you know maybe a handful of people in every generation know how to do such a thing. But there are real and legitimate stories of people consciously taking upon themselves other people's suffering in order to free them from that suffering. So in that sense, uh, Levi Yitzhak was uh, that kind of person. What I just flashed on, maybe the classic case, is after the golden calf, when God says to Moshe, you know, let me destroy the people, I'll make a new one from you. And Moshe says, if you do such a thing, wipe me out of your book. I'm putting my neshama on the line. If you do this thing, like, like, take me away. Wipe me, wipe me out of your book. 
I'll have nothing to do with this. So that's a classic example of, it's a little bit different what we're talking about, but it's close enough. It's close enough of taking that upon himself. If I had more time to think, I could, I could start to remember stories. There's a good one that speaks about difference in knowing that they listen by name. Mm-hmm. This one uh, died for all the when he, when he uh, had a kapara for himself, he took upon all the sins of previous generations, another time for from yeah. that, that generation, another time for several future generations. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not so unusual. Yeah, I would say I would say like this is that uh, if you study carefully enough, virtually every concept in Christianity can be traced back to a Jewish concept. But in most cases, it's taken out of context, it's exaggerated, it's blown out of proportion. But certainly, um, the whole you know it's it's the foundation of, of Christianity, of his taking upon himself the sins of, of all of the people. Okay, so but that teaching doesn't come in a vacuum. You know, they, they got it somewhere. So that's like a very exaggerated case. So we're looking more of, of, of cases of, of people taking on on like an individual basis, but what Rabbi Aaron is saying is that in the Gemara, there, uh, apparently there are Mamar um, Chazals, that certain people, uh, their death was a kapara. We learn that all the time, that uh, death is a kapara. So there is, there really is something, something to it. That's why the first thing we said, that these stories are on many different levels. Sometimes you hear a story and it's like, like the way I told the story, it's a little bit funny. But there's such deep concepts there. But a lot of times, it gets in the first time, maybe sometimes because it is a little funny. And it's just like, but then when it starts to settle in, okay, well, what is the, what are the ramifications of the story? What is it actually teaching us? What's the philosophical um, uh, basis of what we're saying here? So, yeah. Okay, let's um, let's do our let's do our music our music break here. And for those who haven't been to any of my other classes, that we we try to use music as as a meditative device as a way of we were in Denver and this this guy came to the teaching and he just gave us this dulcimer yeah. right it was amazing wow so this is the brand new yeah I mean it's a used one can't find the picture Yeah. 
and you taught yourself how to play this? It's actually missing one string, but it doesn't really interfere. <laughs> Be better with another string. I know a few people who are also missing one string. <laughs> 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 okay, so what have we, what have we been saying here? First of all, first of all, each and every one of us has a story. Right? Story of our lives. And I know that there's a type of psychology that um, the way you tell your story that tells a lot about how you relate to your life. And this time of the year is, in a sense, if we don't like the story, so start writing a different next chapter. And if you look at your story, you can reinterpret it. That's what it says. If you do tshuva from love, your past sins become merits. So tshuva is all about putting a good spin on your story. Even when you look you know, under the carpet and you see all the dirt there, but that's an incentive that, like I said, if you don't like your story, so change it. Change the story. If you realize that the story is not going the way you want it to go, that's, that's the, the power of free will. Remember we said that the, the secret of not only telling stories, but really of hearing stories, is to let the imagination open up, to be, to, to let it flow in. As soon as you hear a story, and I don't mean this in, in any negative way, but sometimes our first reaction is, could that really have happened? Did it really happen? No, that's... We all do that. Because some of these stories are really way out. And you're like, really? Like, So you have to kind of suspend that kind of, that kind of thinking and know that on some level, you know, it's just like asking, did Noah really go into an ark with two of every animal? Like, really? Like, but the story is absolutely true on whatever level it's true. It's like, truth is on, on so many different levels. So, learning to hear a story is, is kind of like letting the story spark the imagination. Let it spark the imagination. And ultimately, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but it's not crucial if the story happened exactly the way it's given over. Because it takes on a life of its own. Which is not to say that these stories are made up. But the story in the moment that it's told is true.
It's another question that historically it happened exactly like that, which is also interesting. Or if it was changed and there's different versions. And, but on a spiritual level, uh, you know, you know it's, it's just like a movie. You see a movie, sometimes you're watching the movie and you say to yourself, this is so unrealistic. Right? This is just like, this is just so unreal. But, with all due respect, what do you expect from a Hollywood movie? <laughs> but, but that's what it is. It is that, okay, if it purports to tell the true story of X, right, then you, you might say, but basically, Hollywood stories are Hollywood stories. They're not supposed to be realistic. They're like, Anyways, but the truth be told, most of these Hasidic stories are really, really real, uh, and, and they and, and they really happened. But again, on what level? Not so clear. Okay, so let's let's just visualize, meditate on. I'm taking our own stories and making them better. That's what that's what Chuva is about. Even a little better is good.
The next story, I imagine everyone's heard in one form or another. It's one of the most famous of all Hasidic stories. And it's a very, very simple story, but obviously that it became uh, so well known and quoted in different ways. And as we said, there, there, there are different versions of the story, but the basic story is that one Rosh Hashanah, very similar to the, the Rishner story, it was in the place that the Baal Shem was davening. And he was like, so serious the whole day, which was very unusual for him. And he prolonged his davening tremendously. And everyone could see there's something going on here something going on and you know his face was like like dark and so they, they understood that you know some heavy judgments were coming down and he was doing his best <clears throat> to sweeten them but it didn't look like it was working and as the story goes uh, there's this young um, shepherd boy in one story, one version, he's, he's Jewish. One, I believe one version, he's not even Jewish. But usually the version is that he's Jewish and he's an orphan. And he really, no one really took the time to teach him. But he came to Shul and he so much wanted to daven. But he, he, he can't even read the sitter. He has, he has no idea what's going on. But he knows that Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment. It's the new year. He sees you know, everyone so serious. And he's just like bursting with wanting to offer his own prayer. But he didn't know how. So one version is he, he took a flute from his pocket and he began playing his flute because that's all that's that's what he knew. So as being a shepherd boy, he, he he felt very connected to Hashem, but how? He would play his flute. Another version is he 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 made a sound like a chicken. Kukuriku. And he was like squawking like like, like a chicken. Because it's just, again, he just, he's a farm boy. He, he wanted to cry out to Hashem. He didn't know how to do such a thing. He sees everyone's davening. So he says, kukuriku. And in both cases, everyone's like outraged. Like, you can't do this in Rosh Hashanah. You can't do this in Rosh Hashanah. And they're trying to shut the boy up. And at that point, they see that a smile comes across to Baal Shem's face 
and he explains to everyone that all day long he's 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 been aware of a terrible dinim hanging over the Jewish people, and that the entire day he was been trying to kind of um, lift the the decree, and nothing was working. He said, but when that young boy played the flute or did his kukuriku, it broke down all of the walls and sweetened the judgment. <clears throat> so this is a very, very... Has everyone heard this story? No? I heard that he was saying the alphabet. The alphabet. Like, you know, like I said, there's... Yeah, different, different version. He had a whistle in his pocket. A whistle instead of a flute. Okay, so right, they're all true. <laughs> how how it happened? One of those probably absolutely happened. But when it, you know, two hundred fifty years later, which one is true? Factually, we don't know. But but obviously, the the message was the same. And this is such an important teaching for all of us, because we're going to be in shul for like so many hours in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and davening and davening and davening and from the book and prayers and but there has to be a place and in all of that davening that we kind of put the sitter down and we just just whatever however it comes out um, to let that out also this is not in place of the prayer the prayers of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur I, I adore I, I look so forward to every word of them so this is not um, in any way shape or form against the formal prayer but the, the teaching of the story is very very important that Ultimately, it has to come from the just the deepest depths of our authentic self, and that is what breaks down all the walls. Now, obviously, the ideal is if we can do it within the actual words of the prayers, we can put our own voice in. The, the, these words are, are prophetic; they're like visionary. They're the ultimate of. of of poetry, but still, it has to be filtered through our own, our own um, scream, our own cry, our own joy. Can you do this nowadays too? That is, put the. I'm thinking. Of, I, 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 I mean, that we that 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 we being a whistle, but can we put the master down and and. I guess what I'm saying is, do we have to say every single word? Like I try to do that, and I never make it. But can I put the moxie down and say what I want? Absolutely. You better. You better. That can be done. Why not? First of all, the repetition of Musaf is two hours. <laughs> yes, I know. And you're not in the middle of prayer, so there's like. Yes, I, you know, I follow along and I sing, you know, all of the nigunim. But the, po the point is, there, and sometimes it only takes a minute. only takes a minute that there's something 
bothering you deep inside or some prayer or some hope or some uh, uh, some way you want to rewrite your story or some change you want to make in your life or whatever it is whatever it is it has to it has to come through so if it could come through the words great that's that's the ideal but even on a deeper level the ideal is it comes through our own voice in our own language in our own way I personally many many times on Rosh Hashanah will walk out of the shul because we live in a very beautiful place and you know I'll just go stand under a tree for five ten minutes in deep deep prayer and meditation and just let it flow just let it flow it's so important it's really so important you know what it's like it's 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 like Eli Wiesel by hearing just a few of these other stories he could believe all the others so here we're, we're praying someone else's words and even though those words are really our words but still they're not a hundred percent ours so sometimes that five minutes that we take and, and stand under a tree in Rosh Hashanah and just open our hearts and speak to Hashem makes all the rest of it so much more meaningful I, I highly encourage everyone and again it's not in place of the press I have nothing but the greatest love and respect for these prayers and and since I'm Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur I'm, I'm one of the Baal Tefillot so I have to say every word of them but still there has to be a time you know it could be before you go to shul get up an extra half an hour early and just use that time there is very important that's why the story is, is like so famous because it, again it sounds it's not a one-time story that happened to one person it's it's because it, 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 it applies to all of us every single one of us has this little shepherd boy in us that is longing to find a way to communicate with God and we don't know how to do it so all we do is just try to be as authentic as we can and just say exactly what's in our heart it's the best the best prayer that can be there can't be any prayer better than that so many good Yom Kippur ones it's like tell them all fast yeah right okay I always tell this at least one time so I guess this is going to be it. Um, 
So the story is like, I, I'll try to tell it as quickly as I can. Um, and the story is that once his name was Ari Leib Saraz. And Saraz, not a last name, after Sarah, his, his, his mother, which is obviously very unusual that someone was known after their mother's name. We'll see from the story why. So he came to a town and uh, he was trying to get home for Yom Kippur. He, get, he got waylaid, he couldn't make it, he finds himself in a strange town. There don't seem to be hardly any Yehudim around. He finally sees one and says, is there a Beit Knesset here? And they said, we're so glad to see you. You're our tenth man. That we have exactly ten men, but last month one of, one of, one of us died. And we didn't know what we were going to do. You're our tenth man. So he was feeling like, wow, I was like, this is Beshert. So he comes to Shul that night, and they're ready to start Kol Nidre. There's only nine men there. And they're waiting and waiting for him. He says, you told me there are ten men here. He said, there are, but one of them lives in the mountains, and he, he comes down every Erev Yom Kippur, and we don't know where he is. So they're thinking, maybe he miscalculated and he's, he got to the edge of town, he had to leave his horse there and he's walking. They're waiting, waiting, waiting. Hours go by. So finally, Ari Leib is so distraught. He says, there, there must be another Jew here. There must be. And he hears one of them mutter under his breath, there is but he would never come. And Ayelaid hears him and says, Who is it? I'm going to them. We have to have a minion. And they say, No, 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 no. No, you didn't hear anything. No, no, no. He said, and he, like he demands, and they could see he was a Rebbe. Right? So like, so they say, well, you're not going to believe this, but the, the landowner of the Poritz, of all these lands, he's actually Jewish. But he is the biggest anti-Semite in the world. So he said, well, what's the story? So they say, when he was young, the daughter of the the, the the landowner fell in love with him and told her father, I want to marry this Jew. And the poet said, over my dead body. Like, there's no way you're going to marry this Jew. But she would not, she would not relent. She said, no, I want to marry him. So he called him in and he said, I don't know why, but my daughter wants to marry you. And over my dead body, she's going to marry a Jew. On the other hand, I want to make my daughter happy. So here's the deal. If you'll convert, you can marry my daughter, 
And someday you'll be the parts and this will all be yours. So he converted. And he married her. This is like 40 years ago. And he's like, eventually the parts dies and he became the landowner. And he is worse than the parts before him. He's the worst anti-Semite in the world. So Ari Light hears this. And he says, I don't care. We need a minion. <laughs> Where does he live? And they're like shaking in their boots. He said, you, you can't do this. You can leave after Yom Kippur, but we have to live here. You can't do this. He says, where does he live? So they told him. So it's late at night already. He goes there, he knocks on the door. A servant comes. And Ariyelah says, I want to see your master. He sees it. it's a Jew. He says, I'm not letting you in. It's like 11 o'clock at night. He says, I have to see your master now. So because he had, you know, he was a rabbi. So like, you know, so he, he goes to get the, 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 his master and he comes. And he's like, what are you doing in my house at 11 o'clock at night waking me up? What's going on here? So he says, um, we have nine people for Kol Nidre. We need a tenth, and I want you to come. So the man says, you're out of your mind. And he starts to throw him out, physically. And he says, wait a second, I want to tell you a story. He said like this, he said, when my mother was 15, she was gorgeous. And the son of the Poritz fell in love with her and wanted to marry her. And there was no way that my mother was going to marry him. But they didn't know what to do. Like, you don't just insult the son of the parts. So she came up with uh, an idea. She said, find me someone right now and marry me to him. That far they won't go. If they hear that I'm married now, that far they won't go. And so right next door lived an elderly wid widower and she said, get him. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they married her to him on the spot. And I'm, I'm the only son. So he looks at him like with rebby eyes. And he says, my mother passed her test. Are you coming with me? Can you imagine this? <laughs> so he's just, he's in shock. He's like, this is the power of a story. Can you imagine Leib Aryeh trying to explain to him about intermarriage and assimilation? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> but he told him the story and he like, it just, so after a few minutes of just standing there in shock, 
he says, I'll come with you. So they get to the shore, it's like midnight, and they cannot believe it. They cannot believe it. And they, they do call Nidre, and he's, he just stands there. Just stands there. They finished Kol Nidre and everyone went home. So the big question is, is he going to show up tomorrow or not, right? They come to Shul, he's already there. And they, they daven the whole day, and everyone, just every five minutes, is like looking at him, like they're just, like, it's, it's, it's like so surreal that he's there. And the whole day, he's under a talus. They don't know if he's davening, they don't, he's just, he's under a talus, they don't hear from him, nothing. It comes to Kol Nidre, excuse me, Ni'ila, comes to Ni'ila, and so at the beginning of Ni'ila, he goes to the Aaron Kodesh. And he's standing right next to him. The Aaron Kodesh is open for all of Ni'ilah. And now he's like shuckling. And you know, Ni'ilah, everyone is like putting their everything into it. But still, they don't see him, they don't hear him, he's just, he's just shuckling. So at the end of Ni'ilah, so when the Shleach Sibor yells, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, and then everyone yells it at the top of their voice. So he screams it. Screams it. And, and people get goosebumps. They're just like, whoa! And then the Shleach Sibur says, Baruch Shem Kavan Ba'ad three times. And everyone's like yelling. But the parrot is screaming. Like, like people's eyes are, are, are bugging out of their head. They're like, people are flipping out. They've never heard anything like this. And then, seven times, Hashem, Hu Elohim, Hashem, Hu Elohim. And he's yelling, and each time it's louder, not just like, it's like unearthly. The whole scene is this blood curdling and when he says the last Hashem Hu Elohim he collapses onto the floor everyone runs over and he's gone he's gone and everyone's just standing there and they're looking at Aryeh who's like kind of conducted this whole thing is going on here? What just happened? So he, he, he thought for a while and he said to them, it says in the Gemara that a person can acquire the world to come in an hour. It's a famous story of, the, of this very, very not good person who on his deathbed 
Mamash Tshuva. And a voice came out of heaven and said, so-and-so is going right to Gan Eden. And Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was like amazed. He said, we're working a whole lifetime. But that's the concept. A person can acquire the world to come in one hour. So Aryeh said to them, we just saw it. And he said Kaddish for him. And the tradition is that Aryeh every young Kippur, would say Kaddish for this person. And it was handed down in the family. Uh, and I read it up, up, to the, uh, up to the Holocaust, it was still being done. I can't say if, if today, because you know, so many people were wiped out, I'm not sure. But up to the Holocaust, in the tradition of Sasev, of, of, of Ayyileb Sarah's family, someone would say Kaddish for this person every year. So the reason I decided to tell this is this is like a continuation of this idea of at one point on Yom Hashanah Yom Kippur, like we have to like acquire our, our world to come in one minute, one hour. We have to just open up all the gates, just break through, break through everything, break through everything. Something we learned about that from Rebotswarski. He said, whenever you uh, you feel like you want to cry, I'm rushing your kipper, just let it flow. Don't stop it. As he said, that's your moment of judgment. Mm. I believe that was from the Arizal. Oh, yeah? Yeah. With those small Oh. I think he was quoting the Arizal. That if, if, if you feel like crying in Rosh Hashanah, the reason is, is because you're tuned in to the moment you're, you're being judged. Okay, so now we'll tell... A, a complimentary story to that. That's like heavy, heavy duty. And this is also a very well-known story of the Lubliner, who in Lublin, after they finished davening on Rosh Hashanah, then they would dance. And they would sing and dance and cry and everyone blesses each other with Nishana Tova and were gone for hours before they would actually go home to the Suda. And one time a <clears throat> a Nagid comes, uh, a very sincere person, and when he sees this, he went up to the Lubliner and he said, Until I saw this with my own eyes, I wouldn't believe it. People told me that this is what happens here, and I refused to believe. That's why I came tonight, because I didn't, I didn't want to believe it. 
said, I can't believe this is happening on Rosh Hashanah. Singing and dancing on Rosh Hashanah? Who heard of such a thing? So the Lubliner puts his hand over the man's eyes and he's transported above. And he sees that there are three books open and all the people who are dancing there is a hand writing them into the book of life, the book of the Tzaddikim. And then the Lublina took his hand away and he says, what did you see? So he, he told him. So the Lublina like points to a man in the corner. There was a man sitting there who was obviously very depressed and off in the corner by himself. And he said, did you see him being written in the book of Sadiqin? The man thought about it and he says, no, he wasn't. So Lubliner says, do you know why we're dancing? He said, we're dancing our way into the book of life. What do you think, this is a party? We're dancing our way into the book of life. So the man is like thinking, and then he realizes, he says, Rabbi, I wasn't being written in the book of life. So the bleeder said to him, you want to be in the book of life? Start dancing. <laughs> Classic story. Classic story. But there's a very deep messenger. Very deep messenger. And truthfully, it would take a while to explain. But bottom line, bottom line is when we have this image of being written in the book of life. So if you look carefully though in, in Musaf, in Unatanak Tokaf, Unatanak Tokaf is like the, the heart of Musaf, this one, one prayer. And if uh, we don't have time to tell it now, but if you have an art scroll, go to Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, find the Unatanak Tokaf prayer, and read how it came into being. It's absolutely one of the most awesome stories ever. Ever. What is it called? Tokath. How do you spell it? <laughs> in Hebrew? It, it could be either language, yeah. Um, vav Nun Tav Nun Hey and then a new word. Tav Vav Kuf Pesofit. Unatana Tokaf. It's pretty near to the beginning of the of the repetition of the Musaf. 
Tokef. So, it, it is well, if you don't know this story, you must look in the art scroll because it tells the whole story. It's like, it's on the same level the story just told. It just, it's like spiritually madhim. I don't know if there's a word in English. It's just, shocking isn't the right word. It's like, Amazing. Yeah, sh- shockingly amazing. <laughs> Anyways, if you look in the Tanatokef, there's a line that many people pass over. It's easy to pass over. But it says, and the books are opened, and the signature of each person is written in it. Like I said, it would be very easy to pass over this sentence without thinking of what it means. But what it means is, it's not so much that someone else is writing us into a book. We are writing ourselves into the book. What is the book in the first place? The book, is remember, it, it, it says also in the Tanatokif, that the books are open and the actions of every person are recorded. So the books that are opened up is nothing more than our story of the last year. Who wrote the story? We did. We wrote the story. We wrote the script. So it says the signature of each person is in it. To tell us it's not so much that God is inscribing us into a certain book. Rather, it's we're inscribing ourselves. So that's what the Lublina was saying. It's not like a cute little, well, you, want to be, you want to be in the book in life? We'll start dancing. But he meant it. He meant it. If you want to be in the book of life, then you have to write a story that is going to put you in the book of life. You're responsible. You're responsible. You're making your own judgment. And in fact, we're, we're told that if, if we use the month of Elul properly and we judge ourselves, there's not much for them to do in the 10 days. Because we've already judged ourselves. We know where we're off. We know where we have to improve. We know what tikkuning we have to do. And if we don't know, then that's, that's the most appropriate prayer. Hashem, I can't get a handle, like, but I'm not going in the right way. I, and I don't know what to do. Show me what my tikkun is. Help me see, and then I'll do it. So it's one of the two. Either we know very well what we should be doing, and if we don't, then we really should ask, Hashem, I want to do tshuva, but I, and I know something's not the way it should be, but I, help me. So that's what's behind. It's very simple. You want to be in the book of life, start dancing. He's telling him something very, very, very important, very deep. Okay, 
Sukkah stories, and we'll end with the Simcha's Torah story. I don't have much time because we try to end on time. So this one I just read, and apparently it happened in Yerushalayim about 68, no, about 80 years ago. About 80 years ago. This was during the th- uh, 30s, I believe, when life in Jerusalem was, was very difficult. Very, very difficult. And there was, there was a rabbi here. He wasn't super famous, but he had, you know, he was well known. And he had this most exquisite hand-carved sukkah. And it was famous all over Jerusalem. It was just like, you know, people like, well, once during sukkahs I have to go to the Kotel. It was, once during sukkahs I have to go to the sukkah. Because it was all hand-carved. And it was supposedly just out of this world. It was gorgeous. And of course, he invited everyone from Jerusalem. And people used to go. Everyone used to go. And one year, circus comes, and people start going. And he's, he has like these sheets up, and, and people ask, what happened to the sukkah? He wouldn't answer them. So this became like the talk of the town. Like, what happened to the sukkah? Because he wouldn't say anything. He just, he just ignored it and just went on talking about whatever they were talking about. And a few years later, he passed away. And people were still talking about it. It was like the mystery. What happened to the sukkah? So I don't remember the exact circumstances, but there was some gathering in Jerusalem that there were like just really a lot of people there. It was for some simcha. And it might have had to do with the person told the story. But someone got up and said, uh, I know that everyone's been wondering for the last five years what happened to the sukkah. And um, I know what happened to the sukkah. But until this Rav passed away, I, I wasn't able to, to say. But now that he's passed away, I believe I have permission. So he said like this, that he, he came to this Rav like five years ago, and his son was very sick. Very, very sick. And people were so poor then. You know, just people were like meal to meal. As you know, sometimes, Halavai, we should see it this winter, but winters here can be very rainy and cold and, and damp. We haven't seen one of those winters in you know, too long. We need one of those. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> we really need it. And it was that kind of winter. So the Rob said, well, what did the doctor say? The doctor says, you know, he's, he's really, really sick. Um, but the biggest problem is we can't keep him warm. And, and that's why he's getting worse and worse. So he said, um, 
well, you know, what kind of heat do you have? He said, I have a wood stove, but I can't afford any wood, and I've scrounged all the wood that there is. So the Rav, with, without a thought, says, well, we'll take my sukkah, and we'll break it up. And the man says, absolutely not. I, so he said to him, do you have a better solution? And the man didn't. So he said, he said, I'm going myself and I'm going to chop it up. So he chopped up his sukkah and he brought it to this man and he told him, not a soul has to know about this. No, it was well, the Rebbe's son wasn't sick. It was somebody. No, yeah, it was some, someone else. So at this big gathering, he got up and said, "This man's son." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Said everyone's been wondering. So the Rebbe gave all of the wood for the sukkah to this man. I can't remember what book I read in it, but apparently happened like in the thirties. Unbelievable story. Why would the Rebbe not? Isn't there an halachas like this? No, no, because you know, someone might have, um, well, um, I'll give you money and see if you can find some wood. Or, um, well, let's, I'll, I'll, you know, put a call out. Let's see if we can find it. He didn't hesitate. He wasn't, he's was like, the boy needed to heat right then. It was, he didn't like, Say, and he might have been able to do it. He might have. He was a rabbi. You know, he probably could have found some wood. But it was like this boy was like, like, on the way out, and right then it was freezing out, and it was just like, like you need the wood right now. This is what's happening, right? So, you, so if like he asked everyone, no one had wood. Of course, a sucker comes before, but it's just that he didn't hesitate. He didn't hesitate, and even the man himself says, "No, there must be another solution, right?" So, but no, that's like. Okay, the so, last. So I just bit before the end of the shoe, are there two cans? If everyone could please put thirty shekels in, if you can afford it. If not. What you can, and please sign uh, your name onto the list so they have a, a tracking of who comes to the classes. Yeah, yeah. And thank you at the, the sign up sheet for the emails. If anyone has not put their name on or doesn't get our emails, please feel free to enter yeah. name. Okay, so last one. Next week, Secrets of the Shofar. Secrets of the Shofar. Next week. And the week after is, um, we're going to do Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and Sinkos Torah in a, a very fundamental way. Um, I don't know if Shalom told me to put the pushkas out. Uh, I don't know if there's a difference. It could be that the other ones for the classes. If we learn all the secrets of the shofar. I didn't say all of them. <laughs> <laughs> secrets of the shofar. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
How have I worked on that? Okay, last story. Ready for this one? We're going to end on like a high note here. So the story is, this happens in the town of Lubavitch. And it's Erev Yom Kippur. And there's a man, I think his name was Mayer. Shmuel Mayer, something like that. And he's, uh, it's, it's early in the morning, and he sees a stranger in the Bay Knesset. Hi, how are you? Where are you from? Just passing through. And he starts talking, and he, he mentions that just yesterday, he was at the next town, and a terrible thing had happened, that a, a, a man with a, a wife and six children were taken by the ports because they didn't pay the rent, and they were being held in a literally a pit, literally a pit, and that the ports was threatening to kill them if he didn't have 200 rubles to redeem them, which would pay the rent. So the man said, like, which town? Which porous? So he told him. So he goes there, and he says, I want to redeem these, this family. He said, well, you know, they owe me 200 ruble, and if I don't have it within days, they're finished. So it's Erev Yom Kippur, so he's afraid that if, if they're not redeemed before Yom Kippur, he won't have a chance again. So he, he knows some of the people in town, so he starts trying to collect money. And everyone's giving, well, it's like a half a ruble, a quarter ruble, two ruble. And it's like one o'clock already, it's Erev Yom Kippur, and he has like 30 ruble. So he doesn't know what to do. And just then he passes by the local pub. And he goes in there. And there's a whole table of, of yin sitting there. They're playing cards, drinking. No keepers on. So he's thinking, well, should I approach them? Why not? I mean, like... They're yidden. So he goes up to him and he explains the story. He says, like, I have to get back for, for Yom Kippur. We have a few hours. Can you pl- I have 170 ruble I have to raise. Can you please help me out? So one of them says, yeah, I'll help you out. He takes a, a glass and he pours it to the top of whiskey. Like, full glass he says if you will drink this in one shot I'll give you 50 ruble this man was not from the drinkers but like these people's life are hanging in the line so he takes this drinks it all in one shot whoa (laughs) he says friends, please. I still have 120 more to go, whatever it was. He said, please. So another man says, I'll help you out. 
He fills up the cup to the top. Says, if you'll drink this in one drink, I'll give you another fifty. Oh my gosh! <laughs> What's he gonna do? Down the hatch. Already he's not even seeing straight, right? Right to his head. He's been running around all day, hasn't had a chance to eat. Goes right, right to his head. He says, 50 more, that's all I need. That man says, no problem. There's <laughs> another cup. Drinks it all down. Give, they give him the money. He stumbles back to the parts. Gives him the 200 ruble. He lets the family go. They're like, they can't believe it. And he's like, okay, it's like an hour before calling the drain. It'll take me exactly an hour to get back. I don't have time to eat. I don't have time to go to the mikvah. I don't have time to change. So he like gets on his horse and like pretty much passes out. He gets to town. He goes straight to shul. And just as the sun is setting. So he walks into Shul, like stinking of liquor, and his his weekday clothes. And everyone's looking at him like, what's going on here? Chutzpah. Chutzpah. So he goes like to the back, and he mums, he can't see straight, and he just like falls asleep. So everyone like forgets about him. So he, everyone's davening and davening and davening. So you know, on Yom Kippur night, and Yom Kippur, we we open and close the parochet, the curtain for the Aron Kodesh, many times. So one time, they get to a place where they're opening the parochet, and at that moment he like wakes up, and he wakes up, and he has no idea where he is. He's just like, he's so beyond. And he's like looking around, and he sees Shul, and they're opening the ark. It must be Simcha's Torah! <laughs> and they're opening the ark to take out all the Torahs. So he gets up, and he starts singing. He starts singing the Simcha's Torah song. So the people are outraged in the middle of 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 Marav, of, Kol, of of Yom Kippur, and they, and they're literally throwing him out of shul. And it was the Midler Rebbe. And the Midler Rebbe it doesn't explain in the story how he knew. Either someone had told him already, or he knew from Ruach Hakodesh what had happened. And he said, "Wait a minute! Wait! 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 Wait!" He says, you have no idea what level he's on right now. The truth is, he really is in Simchas Torah. He's beyond Yom Kippur. He did his Yom Kippur already. He's beyond Sukkot. He really is in Simchas Torah. Hi. <laughs> okay, thank you all for coming.
Um, make sure that you sign the um, sign up there. That way, um, Simchat Shlomo can tell you about all kinds of other classes. And next week, Secrets of the Shofar. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, please tell friends, because each class is really independent. Um, and hopefully see you. Uh, I just want to also mention that every Monday night, we started last night, every Monday night, only five minutes from here, um, is Parsha, every week, 8 o'clock, um, singing, refreshments, um, music, and, and, and very good talk. So please, please come. How's the drink you're contributions